0: The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal business tax or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see A16Z.com disclosures.
1: This is going to be the first episode in what will be a number of uh, shows talking about the enterprise go-to-market. If you don't know what GTM stands for, it's all about how do you get your product in the hands of the people that will use it and ultimately pay you for it? Um, This is not about advertising business models. This is not about social networking, although there is certainly a social component to it. I think we'll talk about community and those things. Um, And we're lucky we have uh, Dylan Field and Amanda Clea who are here from Figma, who just wrapped up their major user conference where they had so many announcements uh, that it was breathtaking and I got to play with some of them today. We'll talk about those in in a little bit. Um, And we have my partner, Ben Horowitz here. Hey, Ben. Hello. All right. Um, So look, we're gonna be talking about a whole bunch of different topics over the course of a number of episodes, everything from marketing, um, customer life cycles, how do you build traditional enterprise sales teams, the pros and cons, but this one is all about the new enterprise go-to-market motion. So you may have heard of terms like product-led growth, you may have heard of things like bottoms-up SaaS, self-serve. But all of these things are all about building a great product, getting them in the hands of people that use them, um, and figuring out how you do those things. And then ultimately, the mechanic of how you turn that into a sale. And when do you bring in salespeople, if ever, at all? How do you engage with your customers? And uh, so I think with that, we, uh, maybe I thought it would be good, Ben, is if we started with just you have done multiple tours of duty with like the traditional enterprise sales world. Uh, you know, sort of, <laughs> that I have right steak dinners, bag carrying salespeople, and yeah. uh, for, for people that have only sort of grown up or joined the startup ecosystem in the last, you know, five six years and only know about the Slack and Dropbox and that kind of model, um, and now yeah. doing why don't you tell people what is like what is the traditional world of enterprise sales like how did how did people buy software?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting. I I would say the first thing to understand is. You know, kind of traditionally, it was pretty expensive to sell software because right? This <laughs> it started before the Internet. Um, and so, you know, you had to have people and they had to fly on planes and go see people and all that kind of thing. And so <clears throat> the target that you were selling to kind of necessarily had to have a lot of money. Um, so it could be a developer like that wasn't like a A legitimate idea, at least in those days, even the kind of companies that sold to developers had to get all the developers. They had to make an organizational sale, and they typically had to be pretty far up market, so larger companies, um, just because it it was going to be expensive to get to customers. Now, the relevant thing about that is um, if you are trying to do a comprehensive sale, a lot of these techniques are still valid, (laughs) Um, quite valid, in fact, and necessary. Uh, but that's kind of, you know, a lot of it comes from that. And and there's kind of, I, I, I break it into several parts. So one is um, kind of legion and how you just get people, uh, you know, in the door. And that, you know, you, you have your kind of regular techniques of, you know, advertising or whatever. Uh, but a lot of it, you know, was kind of education
1: and isn't this what airports are for to find out about enterprise software
3: <laughs>
2: yeah i know exactly
3: yeah wait enterprise no I airports were actually yeah. for the employees that were selling the software making sure that they were like high morale as they landed and had to go sell it that isn't that yeah true well, too?
2: yeah that's true too that's yeah right right Like look, look at my team we can afford big posters um <laughs> that, that was definitely Accenture had many many ads in those airports for example uh, but you know the kind of the first thing you have to do is you have to educate the people with the biggest mouths and you know those in the old days there was a you know a tech press but you know even now there's these things called industry analysts uh, and the industry analysts kind of you know because the software was so hard to evaluate, they would kind of say, look, we know you can't evaluate it, but if we, the Gartner group says it's good, then um, it's okay to buy and you won't get fired. And so that that, that was kind of that whole thing. So there's a lot of marketing effort into um, educating all the industry analysts who would then kind of educate the customers, but it went like way beyond that. So there is something in enterprise uh, kind of selling known as field marketing, um, which is basically you know, you show up in a city, you fly in one of your executives, you invite a bunch of like CIOs to breakfast and you have a little thing where they get to know somebody who's, you know, somewhat important. And then, you know, they learn enough about your software to say, okay, you can have a meeting, you know, with my team or whatever. And then you kind of get in the door and get started. Um, so a lot, you know, there's just a huge effort on, um, that style of education uh which is a little bit you know pre-content marketing or um, (laughs) some of the techniques that we use now uh but then the the next part and and this part i think is really relevant today is enablement and so you're going to go send these very expensive sales team into an account to navigate the account and get the deal um and so you need a like large amount of supporting collateral so it's everything from what are all the things that you have that the competitors don't have and how do you bring those up and convince the customer of them so that when the competitor shows up they're locked out of the account and then there is things like okay how do we prove technically that our product works what are the steps that we have to do to do that and what are how do we prove that we have a business case that makes sense And all that has to be really very carefully thought through so that it's compelling to, you know, a broad set of customers and that when a salesperson goes in and gets that chance, you know, actually gets the meeting, that they have a real chance of advancing the ball to the next stage. But then it gets, you know, even more complicated because if you think about, you know, a company decision, so if you think about selling something like Workday, which is, you know, this big HR system. First of all, how many people have to weigh in on that decision? Well, the CFO has to weigh in because it's got to work seamlessly with finance. HR obviously has to work in because it's their tool. Every manager is going to want to weigh in because they all are going to be subject to that tool. So it's just a lot of cats to herd um, in the first place, but kind of even more complicated They only buy, a company only buys an HR system probably once in its lifetime, so it doesn't know how to do it. So who's going to teach the customer how to buy the software? And that's where you need a very sophisticated type salesperson who can go in, understand how a customer's organization works, and note that in these big companies, The customer doesn't even know how their own organization works. They don't know how to get a purchase. They don't know how to get the decision made. They have no idea because they've never run this process before. So you need somebody to go in, like be like the FBI or the CIA, gather intelligence, know kind of who's powerful, who's not in the organization, all that kind of thing, figure out who's not high in the org chart but has massive influence Um, you know, who's the upper number, who's smart, who's an empty suit, all these kind of terms that these guys know, and then kind of orchestrate your team to go teach these guys how to buy the software and then convince them to buy your software at the same time. And that's, um, you know, and that's why all the dinners and the golf outings and so forth, uh, most of that is intelligence gathering. How do I figure out how I'm really going to crack the code on this big monstrosity, and then if you do it, you know you go get a few million dollars out of the account, and uh, everybody goes to
1: president's club. So is that a good <laughs> summary? David? That, that's a great summary. And the thing is, as you explain it, it's like the craziest thing about all of this is that all these people are making these decisions, and they're not using the product. Like they've never. Yeah, that's exactly no point, right. Yeah, like at no point where you're like, oh yeah, and then they like then they use the product and decide if they like it. But like no, 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 days, no, no, no. it never happens, right? <laughs> so, so no. It turn, like it sounds so insane when you say it that way, because there's a better way, right? And we're now seeing that way. We've seen this now with companies, you know. We've seen it with Slack, where people just start using a product, and it's like individuals, like power users, just start using it. They find out about a technology. There's word of mouth. They hear about it from a friend. Sometimes the product itself is is like just inherently collaborative. And so you just invite your coworkers into it. And, uh, well, I don't know, Dylan, why don't you tell us, like, what, what, before you before you built Figma, the idea of design being collaborative was something that happened outside of the software, but you came up with a better way. What's the way?
3: Yeah, Oh, well, I got to work with a lot of amazing people like Amanda on that too, So it's not just me. But um, yeah, we looked we at stuff like Google Docs and we thought, okay, there's no reason why your text editor should be collaborative, but your design tool should not. Uh, the only reason that is the case so far is because, uh, you know, P- P- it's been a limitation of technology, and there's a chance with WebGL to make it so that you can move all this into the browser, uh, move design to the cloud, and make it so people can work together with uh, with really fun real time technologies like CRDTs. And so um, I think we didn't. It's so funny listening, to Ben, to to kind of describe the way that you're thinking about sort of top down enterprise sales. I remember when I talked with with Steven Sanofsky years ago who just joined the call and uh, it'd be fun to get him on stage at some point. But Steven and I were, he was talking about like, uh, you know, this is maybe in our run up to our series B, he's giving me some advice. I'm like, I'm like thinking about it. He goes, yeah, you know, you got to make sure you understand like how many reps you're going to have, and like, you know, what's your, what's your CAC and sort of like, how do you um, then go sell into these accounts? And I'm just like trying to take notes and figure it all out kind of you know, uh, as asking the questions kind of got to what, what Ben just said. And I think the reality is just like the model has flipped so much, you know, I was taking notes, Ben, just now, and it's like maybe assumed in what you're saying was that maybe there's a bad product needs to be sold versus a good product needs to be adopted. Um, you know, it, it's uh, there's sort of like a reliance on external experts in the old model. Whereas now I think people recognize that the best experts, are the ones they have inside the company. Uh, why would you rely on someone external if your own people, you know, know what they want or not what they don't want. Or, uh, you know, Ben, you said in the old model, it was like sales is FBI. I think mean, now it's it's sales as consultants. Like if we show up and, and ask a, a a designer that we're trying to sell to, to go to a golf game or, or a steak dinner, they'll look at us really weird. Like I, I think our customers are <laughs> just be allergic to being sold to. Um, and uh, they really want us to help them understand if it's the right solution for them. And we're there for that. But that's a very different sort of energy, I think. And then one of the favorite parts, I think, is, uh, you know, Ben, you're talking about field sales, where you have, like, your top execs show up in a, com- uh, a city and they talk to the CIOs. And, like, I mean, I, I went on tour, too, but we used to do, like, a lot of listening sessions with our users, you know, and built yeah. connections with our community. And I think that's been so much a part of how we've grown Figma every step along the way is how do we bring the community along with that? Uh, and how do we learn from them? And how do we empower them? not as a way to sell or to market, but rather as a way to really understand what to build and also as a way to hopefully amplify the right messages. And, um, and I think like coming off of Config, which we just had, uh, which is not just a, a way for Figma to talk about the new news that we have, but also it's a way to give our, our community a platform. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's really special when you get that loop going and you're sort of creating more of that, that, that aspirational brand for your area. And you're able to then promote uh, the customers that you have to give them a voice too, to impact the community that they care about as well. And so I, I think it's just a kind of a very different motion uh, than this old world that we've been in. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe it has go full circle and eventually get back to it. Uh, but but yeah, I, I think it all starts with just like, can you create a great product that people can just adopt rather than feeling like you have to kind of create this thing and then and shove it down people's throats? I don't know.
2: Yeah, and I think that, you know, you know, a big part of that is SaaS where you know, in the old days of installed software and you know, it was very hard to adopt or and use um so trying it out uh wasn't really viable. I just to give you an example, you know, when Siebel was selling their kind of famous uh CRM package, it was a million dollars to deploy <laughs> to just to set up to use for your company. So you couldn't very well do that on a trial, and so you needed all these other signals. And, you know, part of that, um, you know, we can say it's bad software, but, you know, one of the challenges with writing software in those days is, you know, people have trouble now putting their software on like AWS and Azure. Well, imagine every customer is their own AWS or Azure with their own networking weirdness, their own computers, you know, different servers, HP UX 1020 that doesn't have threads and this and that and the other. And so building software of quality was really important. And at least, you know, 60 to 70% of the effort went into just dealing with the customer environment as opposed to building functionality.
1: Totally. Yeah, you, know, you know, Ben, there, there's an aspect of that, that world where there are people would make these user groups to where customers would sort of find each other and seek each other out to get help from each other because oftentimes the no. company let them down. But now community, right, is, like, is a whole different thing. And, uh, you know, Dylan, you mentioned that Config, your big user event, just ended. And so, you know, I think for, we, we sort of jumped right into this, but for people that don't know, Amanda Clea is the chief customer officer of Figma. Dylan is, is founder and CEO of Figma. They just had their big user event. You know, I'd, I'd be curious to hear um, both of you talk about how you think about community as it relates to this idea of enterprise go to market. How do they get involved in the user conference? You said it's not just a place for you to launch things. Like how is community a part of your go-to-market strategy? Where does it fit in the funnel? And what what role does it play?
3: to take that
4: one. Yeah, sure, I'll start yeah i I remember I think it was maybe the second week I started at Figma. Dylan said, Amanda, we need a user conference, <laughs> so it was definitely top of mind for him, and I think he, to his credit, really thought about community marketing as a way to to launch the company and the product from the get go and so community is one of the words in Figma that has a lot of different meanings and really bleeds into our culture and how we think about everything. And so uh, we put our first user conference on last year in February in person. And since then, we've had two virtual conferences, um, the latest one in the last two days, which has been pretty amazing with over 60,000 people registering for it. So Each time we do it, it gets better and better. And the community has been at the heart of how we determine the strategy for the conference. So uh, for every single uh, one of these we put on, we've really gone to the community to be part uh, and lead of what the content is. Because the thought is if we can get them excited to talk to each other, talk about topics they're interested in, that is uh, a key recipe for success. And if we can get people excited about being part of the Figma community and the product and the brand, um, that's a win for us. So uh, we decided to make it two days this time, and it was it was just so much fun. It, it got our whole company uh, rallied and amped up for the rest of the year, which was great to see. Um, also, it's just
3: like on the product side, I think it's so inspiring because – you know, for example, I uh, I remember literally finishing my keynote yesterday, and then hopping into a uh, session on spatial software by John Palmer, and it was it was incredible just to kind of like hear him talk about not just the news we just come out with, which he hadn't even seen, he was just reacting to, but also his vision for how to create software, and honestly, it is it, that plus like the entire event filled me and, and our entire team with ideas of how to go make Figma so much better for our customers. And I know I think it's, it, there's just like these really great loops around community that you get. Um, it's funny too, but I was just thinking about how you were saying earlier about you, you have to do all this work to make sure your customers don't churn. And, and to me, it's, uh, it's like, man, if you're relying on the good of market motion, do that it kind of sucks, right? Like if you could instead rely on having a great technological moat because you're so far ahead of the competition a great product experience but most of all network effects um that's even better to rely on for enterprise software than like fancy go to market stuff
2: yeah and and i would just say the fancy go to market stuff today so like for <laughs> if if we're out of on premise software world and all those kinds of traditional things i think it's largely about you know when you have kind of many personas and many kind of stakeholders in the organization that come from different parts of the organization, that's when uh, you end up needing more complicated sales techniques. So, you know, um, and and it's not for everything, you, you know, for every kind of product, but if you just, you know, even a product like Slack, where there's a lot of different kinds of users and then, you know, in a big company with, say, 50,000 people, you may have different groups that like different chat solutions, but then the company wants to standardize on one. And at that point, yeah, you can rely on your users, but if Microsoft is in there, you know, at the CEO level, and you're not in there, and you have users that like it, and then there are other users that use Teams and don't even know about Slack, um and you just rely on your product goodness, you can still lose very easily. Like that's, that doesn't win every time. And so, you know, depending on how broad your product, like I I do think in the situation that you have where you've got a very kind of specific kind of user who loves you, um, that's a, you know, does change when there's more different types of uh, people in the company who have to use the product. And then, there's kind of a political dynamic as well inside the organization. Um, but, you know, it still helps tremendously if, you're proud, if your users love it because then they'll fight for you really hard. Um, but that's not always enough.
1: Yeah, I think that, that's a really good point, Ben, that you're talking about. And it's the, the idea that all of a sudden, you know, the security person in the company now all of a sudden saying, hey, what's this new tool that's happening or being used? Where's our data going you have other people in the organization that may want to do a more complicated. Let's say you use the Microsoft example with Slack. You know they may have a much larger Microsoft deal that covers Office and everything else. And Stephen can certainly tell us about that strategy. Where you know it's like, oh, well, now all of a sudden, chat Microsoft Teams is free. You don't have to pay for Slack. Teams is free, and it, it is. It does. It does get challenging to combat those things. Um, it is different though when you have a great product that now is being used by everyone in your company. To me, that is where the account manager or the salesperson can get involved. And, you know, you talked about enablement, the battle cards come into play, the ability to have the talking points where you don't just lean on the product, but you leverage the fact that the product is already in use. It's already entrenched and, uh, and there is opportunity there. I mean, I don't know, Stephen, how, how you've seen the world evolve uh, where company, you know, it's harder just to displace something where the users and the employees are voting basically with their voice and saying they want to use a piece of software.
5: Oh, that is a zillion percent true. Um, you know, if if you're trying to displace something and people are already using something else, like the the problem is they they still have their phones, they still have their home computers, and they're still SaaS, and so they're just going to keep using it. And at some point, they even just say, "Yeah, go ahead, fire me for." Trying to do my job better. And that's a a very real, a very real dynamic. The 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 most interesting thing to pick up on what Ben was talking about and, and you amplified is this what to do when your product is viewed by a competitor as a feature of what they do. Now that could be technically true or more likely is completely fabricated. Like they're just bolting on some piece of software, but they're bolting it on to an existing sales motion and that existing sales motion is very very powerful like the number of times customers say we get this for free already is you know it's very very tricky to compete with that now many people do and people have done fantastic jobs doing that almost always because they ultimately get the word through that that barrier of that their product is better and just delivers way more value so you know, there you, but you have to do that. And in order to do that, you have to get all the stakeholders, the security people, the infrastructure, people, the, you know, the remote people, the HR people, whoever it is to really hear those, that pitch in a sense.
1: All right. So we're, we're getting into some meat here that I think Amanda and Dylan can, can help us with, which is like, how do you then know when you have a product that people are using in an organization, when do you decide to bring in salespeople? Like, how do you, what is the trigger that says, Hey, there's a bigger opportunity here, or we're maybe at risk of being displaced, or we could capture, you know, a, a bigger part of the wall-to-wall sale. Like, how do you how do you make that decision?
3: I mean, for us, uh, it isn't even before Amanda joined, then she'll have a lot of useful perspective on Steve, both from Figma, but also Zendesk and other companies that she's advised and and helped with. But literally, our users were saying, first of all, please charge us. Uh, we weren't, we weren't literally not charging for the product for a long time. They they thought thought you were, they they thought you were a nonprofit. No, they just thought that we'd go out of business and they're like, we really like your software and, and can you please charge us because we want to spread this within our company. And like, no one believes us that we should use this. No one takes you seriously because you literally are just giving everything away for free. And we're like, Oh, okay. Well, we didn't think we had product market fit, but maybe we do. Uh, in retrospect, we're a bit conservative in how we saw that, um, the second thing was, our users asked us, Hey, do you have any salespeople we can talk with? And the reason they were asking that was not because they wanted to be sold to, they were already sold, but rather because they had to navigate internal processes like IT, procurement, security, and they wanted someone on Figma's side to help with that. Like, that's a lot for someone to take on. And so that's when we started to go, Okay, shit, like, we got to hire some salespeople. Um, but for a long time, our, our 100% of our motion was completely inside. Now we're starting to be. You know, a bit more proactive, a bit more outbound as well, but um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of evolved over time. That's where it started, Amanda. I am sure you've got tons of thoughts here.
4: Yeah, no, I think you are one hundred percent right, Dylan. The for for Figma in particular, our customers told us we should hire salespeople <laughs> essentially because they, like Dylan said, needed to navigate their own internal processes and wanted us to help them through that. So, it wasn't tell us the value of Figma. It was uh, how can we think through a proper rollout plan and and a relationship here? And so, um, one of the th- things that we also did was uh, we we focused our sales team on our on our top tier plan. So that I thought was a, a really smart move that was was more or less in place even before I got there, um, which which really lended itself well to having our self-service motion, uh, upgrade people out of the free plan into our professional tier, and then sales focused on those bigger type of companies that were really more suited towards the the enterprise tier. So there was this nice divide, and that's something that we struggled with at at Zendesk for a while, is where do you make that divide between self-service and sales? Um, but we've figured out that at Figma quite well so far. So um, it's been interesting from that standpoint.
3: And by the way, talk- one thing we do too is we also have self-serve for the highest tier. So if you don't want to talk to someone, you shouldn't have to talk to someone. <laughs> That's something that we really believe in too. Definitely, uh, definitely. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Amanda, can you can you talk more about how you decide on, you know, Dylan mentioned you're now doing some outbound kind of work. When people are in that highest tier, how how do you decide who's worth going after? Is it outbound marketing campaigns and drip campaigns, and maybe you can explain to people what what those things are if they don't know? Is it sending yeah. them an email account manager? How do you? What are the triggers or what what makes you decide how to go after someone? Sure, sure.
4: yeah. So it's interesting. We're evolving as we go, but we're at the stage where we haven't assigned sales reps to territories per se, geographic territories, um, maybe by continent we have, but not so much within regions of the of the globe. And so we're still round robining inbound leads. Um, but in order to start a proactive, more outbound focus motion, what we've done is we've identified a list of target accounts that we want to go after and we've divvied those out to the reps. So they have a book of business that they can go um, work with and and many of those domains, if you will, those those companies in that book of accounts might have some Figma um, knowledge. They might have signed up for our free plan. They maybe are using the Pro plan. They they or or maybe they signed up and aren't using. So there's oftentimes some usage there to work with. So it's not just a cold outbound, and so that's part of how our sales playbook is is coming together. It's just, what do you need to do when you look at your book of accounts and how do you approach it? And so that's been interesting to navigate.
1: Yeah, so this, this is to me, one of the most interesting things about a SaaS software and SaaS business model is that you can look at how your customers and your perspective, sort of free customers, the people that aren't paying yet are using the product. And you can use that to inform how you communicate with them, you can use it to inform when you want to go have sales, engage with them. But are there are there tools and, and that never existed before, right? This, this changes the whole way people understand how their customers use their software. Like in the on-prem world that Ben was talking about, that just it wasn't possible. You have to <laughs> call them and interview them, right? Um, yeah. Maybe play play some golf or something, <laughs> and um,
2: they wouldn't tell you the
1: truth. So that's right. Well, they didn't, they didn't even know because you probably were talking to the the buyer and not even the user. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, I'm, I'm curious if there's tools or if there's things that you've uncovered, and, you know, because Figma is really defining the model here, I think, and in, in pushing it even way beyond where where companies like GitHub and Box and Dropbox and Slack, you know, they, they, they I would call them sort of like that first gen approach where it just sort of spread out. But here you really have um, users inside the product collaborating collect all this data, how, how are you using that? Are there tools that are out there? Should somebody go out and start a company to help you with these, like the same way that HubSpot and Marketo did in the, in the old enterprise world?
4: Yeah, well, we definitely use uh, tools that help enrich our data, because if you've signed up for Figma, you know we don't ask very many questions at all. In fact, we just ask you for your email and what your job title or department is. So we we don't ask you for much and then we do some enrichment on the back end if we can for that um but it's you know in the old model of of Ben talking about it's the sales rep is is trying to come up with a game plan about how do I tell you about the value Figma could bring to your organization but in this new model it's more about the sales rep figuring out a playbook for Okay, let me see what I got to work with here let, and and it's all about let me tell you cio about the value figma is bringing to your organization and why you should double down on it so it's a very different kind of conversation uh, and it and it as Dylan said, it's a consultative um not so much selling it's all it's also about who's my who are my product champions and how can I use them to my advantage and and really getting a team together uh, to do the final push.
5: And when I was
3: talking with CIOs, I mean, I remember, you know, some of our amazing investors invited me to some like CIO presentation things. And it was fun. Like, you know, CIOs are really smart and have a lot of perspective on on business and they can make the right introductions to their their company. But like, you know, if I impressed them in the presentation, they would just invite us back to the design team and so i think that there's just a a greater shift towards internal experts and and sort of domain specific functions evaluating versus uh you know one central office evaluating now to fraud companies of
1: i th- i think that that um, that largely makes sense i am still curious though if there are and maybe it's early in the journey for for figma how you know if you know the way figma's funnel works there's you know you have millions of free users right or or individual users you know, there must be a way to sort of distill signal of how, you know, I think a lot of companies are faced with this, especially a lot of these bottoms up SaaS companies. How do you then sort of find these catalyzing moments, either to send them an email saying, Hey, there's more features available. um, If you upgrade, or do you want to talk to a sales rep? You have 30 people in your organization. And, And I think a lot of this is uncharted territory. And I'm, I'm curious what you've seen that either hasn't worked in the past that you've evolved away from, um, or things you'd like to be doing, that even if you're not doing them today? Well, I, I think
3: uh, one backdrop here is that we're in the very fortunate position still of having probably more demand than we can service. And so that does impact a lot of the way that that things work for us right now.
1: That's a great place to be. I don't know, Ben. <laughs> <if> we, <laughs> it's, I mean, that's what happens when you have a world-class product, right? That you're able to then have that growth outpace it. Well, let me ask you this then: You introduced a new product, FigJam, right, to whiteboarding software. How do you think about new product introduction in a world where you already have an amazing first product, and you now are, are introducing a second product? You have a huge audience and, and people to bring and in, introduce it to. What, what was? How do you think about that versus making it a feature in Figma? And you know, I'd love to hear the, uh, the thinking behind new new product introduction in a product led growth company.
3: Totally. Yeah. So those who don't know, FigJam is uh, our new whiteboarding play, and basically the way we see it is, is if you take the entire design process, uh, essentially there's three stages. There's the early stage where you're brainstorming, ideating, you're synthesizing research, you're, you're diagramming things, you're trying to figure out like what is it that we're building and how we're going to do it. The second stage is design, where you're you're making prototypes, you're collecting feedback from people. Uh, you're working together simultaneously, you're trying to, um, you know, really present your work and, and iterate to get to the best solution. The third stage is okay. Now let's go build it. So how do you move from design to production? And we see design systems, which are a big part of how teams keep their designs consistent across the organization, uh, as well as making it so they can like update things everywhere, but also get leverage from scale that we see is a really core part of how people go from design to production. And for us, uh, you know, there's there's this sort of this natural question of like, okay, all the brainstorming ideation stage areas, are those things that should be in the design part of it? Or do we make a separate product there? And ultimately, what we decided was, let's go make a second, second product here, because we felt that the use case was divergent enough that it really warranted that. But also, Figma is a general design tool, uh, and we can always add more power functionality to it. But... It's so important to be able to have a tool where the use case is really crisp and it's specialized so that it's a very simple tool uh, that can be used by many audiences. Because designers need to involve not just other designers in the early stages, but they also need to involve everyone else from their team. And so that's why FigJam was a second product. Now, we've actually made FigJam free for all of 2021 because we recognize that we're in a period where we're building it right now. It's a beta. Uh, there's a lot that's, you know, we're still going to polish. There's things we're going to add. Uh, hopefully it's differentiated in terms of, you know, we really focus on how we make Fiction the most fun place to do an early stage brainstorm, uh, to whiteboard, to ideate with your team, how to get in flow state, how we make it so that you can go into this space and do things like, uh, cursor chat or emotes or voice chat. So you can really start to like, or even high fives. That was one of my favorite parts of the demo yesterday. Uh, but like. How do you basically make it see so like humanity can shine through in this space and and uh, I think because of that we're able to just have like a much more focused product, but you know ultimately hopefully go to market approach than figma, which which is just a, a lot more vast in terms of of uh, the use cases of it, its services
1: when you when you think about sort of building a marketing plan, building a user acquisition plan. Is this something that you're going to treat separate teams, separate products? I always think organizationally when a company introduces a new product, you know, there's all kinds of questions about how you structure those teams as a startup within a startup. And, you know, I think, you know, Ben, you've seen basically every iteration, you and I have probably both seen every iteration of companies that try to introduce a second product. And I think it's it's a question that, you know, there's different things that work at different companies, but this is, you're building this as a standalone product. Is a standalone team, standalone go-to-market, or do you think you're gonna be able to leverage all the designers that that and users that use Figma today?
4: Uh, so far, I'll say we haven't structured internally that way. I think we it's been all hands on deck and we're all very dialed into seeing how things pan out um, as far as who adopts the product, how it gets adopted and learning and growing with it. Um, we have a lot of things that we want to add to. So um, we haven't structured the team differently in order to accommodate for a more traditional two product company. But I think we don't, I don't feel like we've felt the need to do that yet, but we're still, we're still in the middle of it. Yeah, I think some of the questions that are relevant there, and Ben, I'm sure you've got to, like David
3: said, you yeah. you and Steven, also David too, have seen so many iterations of this, and way more than... Than I have, that's for sure. But I think some of the questions that I would ask there are like, are these cases so divergent that sales reps or or people that are on the product marketing side need to really learn and specialize in one product or another? I don't think that's the case for FigJam. I think that, that uh, a lot of the knowledge from Figma, uh, the design tool, is transferable to FigJam in that new world. And I think we'll learn about all sorts of new use cases and new personas and new ways that people are going to interact with this tool, which is going to be awesome. But I don't think it's beyond our, our reps or our, our marketing ability to kind of like hold both in their head. Now, if we were going to go into something that's also very technical, uh, but different than design, I think that would be something where we would need to start thinking about that. But I, I don't think that that's, that's really what we're thinking about right now.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think if you're selling a new product on the same product architecture to the same buyer and the same user, then you typically don't need a different go-to-market motion for that. Um, it usually changes if all of a sudden the people using the product have very different jobs than the people who use the prior product or if you're selling a different product architecture. Um, and you, you know that, that's generally where you have to make a big new channel investment. I
1: think the um... – the two probably hardest things for a company to transition through are m a is one, or so acquiring a company and making that acquisition successful, and then sort of new product introduction. And a new product introduction, the best part is you have control over how that goes. I think what Ben, what ben said is right. If you're able to market to the same audience, if you're able to create more surface area from the same user base to engage with the product, all that makes a ton of sense. That's obviously going to be true with, with Fig Jam. I'm a Figma user. As of this afternoon, I'm a Fig Jam user, right? Like it, it it's all the same. The ability to then sell to that same buyer also makes a ton of sense. It it gets really, really hard when the marketing collateral and the marketing team says, Hey, we want to send a different message because there's a there's people that are responsible for a revenue number for one product and they want newsletter or whatever, the community engagement, you know, messaging to all focus on their new product. And then the other team is focused on their number. And you start to get all these internal dynamics. And as organizations think about how to structure things, these things tend to get more and more tenuous as people have different and different goals. So it seems like, you know, keeping the teams together right now, you know, it makes sense. Have you thought about what would happen with your third product, your fourth product, or too, too early to go down that road?
3: Yeah, I think. By the way, as as welcome to uh, uh, Boris up and, and another person. Hi. We'll see if if they accept or not. But uh, and I'll let Boris introduce himself in a sec. But yeah, I think third fourth product we gotta focus first on our our two existing products, David, and make sure that they're successful. So we're a little bit ahead of there.
1: Boris is the uh, founder of Census. Do you want to explain Boris what what Census is and how actually the sort of product led growth companies are using Census? That might be. Uh... Yeah, you know, we talked about some of the tools, but we didn't name them. And yours is one of them. Sure. Yeah, I've been uh,
6: very lucky to watch uh, how Figma uh, runs its ship for the last few years, uh, uh, thanks to our software, but mostly thanks to their great team. Uh, yes, yeah, Census is a is just a—it's a tool that operates at the kind of the data layer to help product-led companies uh, extract which users they should talk to at what part of the customer journey. And one of the things that Dylan said, that really resonated. That I think he's under underselling in a way is like, there's too many users, right? So even if you did want to throw them at salespeople, <laughs> not that you should, th- you actually can't match that many uh, uh, users with, with a go to market team. So you have to figure out how to do that. Well, you have to identify the right people, the right champions at the right time, who want to talk to you and who might be willing to be cross sold a new product or upsold uh, uh, an enterprise product, and I think that's something that uh, Figma does really, really well. And and we kind of give them the the tooling for their operations team to kind of automate that, so that you 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 can do this at scale.
3: And thanks, Boris. And also, I just invited Ann up, uh, and Ann is someone who I mean, is amazing, uh, and and is actually a, a friend of Amanda's for a long time. Uh, I saw that her introduce herself as well.
0: Hey, Dylan. Thanks for the invite. Hey, Amanda. Hi, everybody. Yeah, Amanda and I spent many years together at Zendesk. um, And then I also have the privilege of sitting on the Asana board, another business that has a very similar um, kind of go-to-market motion in terms of, you know, great free product, lots of evangelist users, great community, and then, you know, an upsell motion now to enterprise. Um, But I first just have to call out, I literally just met with uh, early stage founder today who wanted to who was so excited about FigJam that she showed me her team brainstorm that they just did on it today. So yes. let's talk about like product <laughs> adoption on day one. So uh, so it's happening.
1: Awesome. Welcome, Anne, and and thanks Boris for that for that uh, overview. So Anne, what do you what what do you see as companies? really try to figure out how do they connect their bottom up sort of motion and then really engage and activate a sales motion, whether it's automatic and self-serve and through marketing or or any other ways. What do you what are you seeing?
0: Yeah, I, I see like very much what the team at Figma is doing. I think the great companies are mostly starting with like what are the customers Asking for or needing, and paying attention to that. And so, at different stages, especially around like going up market, that's been a topic that's brought up is looking at like what do they actually need help with as that company is growing? Is it an expansion motion? So, do you have a team that's super excited about the product, those champions that we've been talking about? But is the friction point for them then being able to spread it through the rest of their company and getting buy in? Um, And so how do you help them with that process versus in other cases, it may be, hey, they need, they're using one part of your product really well, and the opportunity is actually discovery of what else, especially as many of these applications get more sophisticated, right, and add more features and get more robust so they can serve bigger customers. It's the balance between making it very intuitive, but then that discovery motion. And so that's when either customer success or support or sales, depending on how you organize, can really be that help for them to navigate their own internal organization um, and then expand more quickly within that organization. I also think there's a difference between trying to understand if your customer, is this product brand new for them and solving a problem that they, the team now has versus, are they trying to replace something that they already have? Those two needs are different and being able to understand that and diagnose that is really important too.
1: That's excellent. One of the things you, your answer just made me think about is, you know, in, in the old software world, you would always go out and interview users and collect user feedback. In the product-led growth world, you obviously were talking about products that are world-class and best-in-class. I'd be curious, how does user feedback change? Like when you have, if you are trying to move up market, how do you prioritize user feedback? Is it different in a product led growth world? Because in the old moving up market, when people used to say moving up market, it often meant you were leaving somebody behind. But in this world, you know, I don't think you mean that. I think, you know, when Figma or Asana or these companies move up market, they're not leaving anybody behind, right? They're just expanding the sort of the customer set that they can go out and, and reach yeah I mean, I think
3: like if you if you look at sort of the way that people adopt figma, a lot of our larger accounts start with being very small, and you have to make sure that that experience when they account of small is also fantastic. So you can't sacrifice one end of the spectrum of like of how large a team might use figma for the other end um otherwise you you won't get both. um I think that uh, yeah as as we think about. Who to build for? Uh, you know, first and foremost, or the person that's using the, company, the software is really important. But I think as you do service um, more enterprise demands, you also need to think about, uh, for example, who's administering the account, who is on the procurement side, and you might be building product for them too. So you just have to think about uh, those different personas as well.
4: Yeah, I'll add. I don't. I don't think we necessarily take in user feedback any differently. We, do, we t- do take in a lot of user feedback and the whole company is very involved with doing that and funneling that in and sharing it with the whole company in a way that I think is very, maybe different from from the old days where there was more distinct lines of how user feedback got in for us it's very fluid it happens through sales it happens through research it happens through marketing it happens through support Um, and and slack has been one way that we can really share all that feedback out with the whole company um, in a natural way so that's been interesting to see evolve and watch well, I think, Amanda and Anne, you both touched on something really significant, that
6: it's wall to wall, right? It's support, it's sales, it's marketing, it's product. The data is ambient. It's, it's just kind of the users are doing stuff all the time. And you can't really uh, assume like there's this one account manager who knows everything about this customer because they built this relationship uh, uh, once upon a time when they sold the product. And I think it means you have to extract signal from what's going on. And uh, one of the things I've seen, and again, I've seen this at Figma, but I've seen it at a lot of other companies is you want to know uh, what people are doing in the product as kind of I think that's king over, over almost all other feedback you might get. And there's a lot you can track right in something like Figma in terms of how many uh, people are they inviting? How often are they using the product and all these kinds of things. And, and then you can use that to identify the right time to start a human conversation. And I think one of the ones I've seen the most is is B2B companies that are reaching these scales that Figma has reached, which are borderline consumer levels of, of users, right? Uh, I don't know what the, the line is. I don't know I don't know where the line becomes where you're a B2C company, but uh, the, the, uh, you, you actually start tracking active usage of the product and specifically like triggers where the ratio of how often you're using it over the course of a week or, or uh, like weeks within a month falls or goes up beyond a certain point. And usually it's like, you know, I think of this is a uh, very much the um, uh, 5d7 metric, it, which is popular at Facebook, I think, uh, and a lot of companies adapt that you can then say, well, hold on, this is now when I should be talking to them, they've really become super engaged. That's my champion. And it goes both ways, right? The customer success team can also take that and go like, Oh, it fell down. <laughs> I should probably talk to them and engage. And maybe the, the feedback, like the research side can be the same, right? It can actually take real signals from the app to determine when to get qualitative feedback.
3: Yeah. By the way, this is like a really interesting metric that Boris has mentioned that I just want to touch on for a second, which is the number of days out of seven or the number of days out of 28, for example, uh, that someone uses your product. And what ends up happening is you look at these graphs, you have a distribution. uh, We actually see sort of, you know, 47 plus growing faster than, you know, 3 7 minus. And then also, um, I, I think what's interesting for a long time is to see, if you look at the last 28 days of usage, um, around the 28 day mark, or sorry, not 28 days, uh, rather 20 day mark, we see a big spike upwards, because that's sort of every work day of the month, minus the weekends. Uh, so it ends up being kind of a smile graph where, you know, it starts off, there's a lot of people that use it one or two days a month, uh, and then drop off. But then there's a lot of people also that, that are using it at the other end, uh, and there's some people that even use it every day out of 28. Uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully it's out of uh, you know love, not not uh, they're being forced to. But but it's really neat to see that those demographics over
6: time and figure out how do you shift that histogram. I think the seven days a week people are the ones where you trigger the action that says maybe get them a little gift, like hey, relax, like we love you. Exactly.
0: What? One point Boris made and Dylan made that's worth focusing on in terms of like the B2C like adoption, but that you're a B2B model is I think something Figma's done really well is thinking about pricing and billing and how you do that and when you do that. So you don't create friction in adoption in organizations because the right within an organization, understanding billing and whose budget and who pays for it. Is really critical, especially when you want to spread across teams and not having that billing moment be something that stops the spread. When someone's like, oh, my team's gotten approval for it, I want to share it with this other team, but I don't know if I can pay for it. So, really understanding those dynamics are critical for expansion, um, especially across teams and organizations. So, you want that B2C like adoption, but you have to be smart about. B two B billing and payments. Um, And I think Figma has been super creative and very thoughtful about that and pioneering different ways to think about it.
6: And it gets one better. Like, of course, you got to do that. And Dylan's line about, (laughs) you know, if people want to pay, you know, they should just be able to pay, they shouldn't have to talk to a salesperson. And the funny thing is people never stop wanting to have an amazing experience with your company. And so the last thing they want is for you not to be aware of that. And I think this might have been one of the first things I saw Figma implement when we started working together, this is a few years back, was making the sales organization automatically aware of all of that self-service activity so that if someone had decided to pay for themselves, you weren't calling, because people used to call and be like, hey, what, you're going to pay? And then you'd be like, I already did, <laughs> which is the last thing you want to do uh, is to remove the friction and then look stupid uh, uh, when when the, the, the go-to-market side is calling and going, I didn't realize you, you had already paid.
1: There's a guiding philosophy, I think, of the best enterprise software companies, which is um, certainly in the modern era, which is make it easy for your customers to give you money, and uh, that turns out to be true. And and you can inculcate that in the product, in the e-commerce experience, in the sales experience, um, and however your customers want to pay, if they want to have 20 different packages across the organization because of budget issues or if they want to roll it up under one. Being really thoughtful about that, as Anne, as Ann mentioned, is critical. And, you know, I think one of the other observations is that when we look at companies that are having meteoric bottoms up growth, they really don't put any friction in the user expansion inside the organization. So even if somebody's only paid for 50 seats. They let you use a 55 seats or 100 seats or whatever, and they deal with the billing issue later. They'll catch you up. They'll true you up. They'll, you know, even maybe without even doing it in arrears. And uh, the goal is really just to drive that organization-wide adoption. And uh, Figma obviously does that uh, extremely well. But lots of other, all the other successful bottoms-up SaaS companies are doing the same thing. They basically don't put up any barrier to, ex- to, to just organic expansion within an organization.
6: I do think there's a really interesting cross-pollination between uh, B2C companies, as Anne's pointing out, and and, and how e-commerce companies do things, uh, and bottoms up, go to, like, go to market. Uh, I'll give you, I think, one example. I think when I got started in, in SaaS, the generic nurture email was, you know, you got started, and then at the end, you would send a... On the seventh email, if they never engaged, you just throw them a 10% discount or something. <laughs> just something you're super generic. And in e-commerce, like they long since got past that stage, right? And now they're very uh, data driven. They have actual data science on what drives retention, what promotions are the right ones to give, and when and to which audience, and they segment their audiences like really carefully. And I think B2B companies should think the same way, especially when Morris, you're It's with, funny, yeah. actually, you mentioned that because like
3: for Figma, my rule, which is, you know, a bit hard times, but we we've, we've kept with it. Uh, even with our largest customers is no discounts. So again, mm-hmm. you know, going back to like old world world enterprise where, you know, everyone's living for the discount, you know, uh, uh, procurement, you know, they're compensated sometimes on well, do they get a discount, how much value do they save. And it's like, no, for Figma, if you want to adopt, we're gonna be completely fair and transparent. Uh, rather than you having to wonder, did you not get the right deal? Like we're not gonna do discounts and and fuck that. Like why, why go do that right now? So You know, in the future, perhaps that's something that we have to think about as we, you know, get more people external to organization uh, uh, involved in our sales process. But for now, I think it creates a more healthy customer relationship.
2: Yeah, it's certainly way better if you can do it. I agree with that. Um, (laughs) On, yeah, large. I mean, the 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 test will be like, you know, if you're doing a ten million dollar deal. And you've got, you know, some other competitor, and the CFO is the decision maker. That's when it gets hard to not discount. But as long as you can do what you're doing, I agree. It's it's much more fair, and it also saves a tremendous amount of time because a huge part of the sales cycle is negotiating the discount. So that there's a there's another benefit.
1: That's right. Yeah, you know, companies like Atlassian have managed to. Uh... Even to this day, I think still don't do. They may have a pricing curve, but there's no negotiation on an individual um, on an individual deal. This is actually, you know, Boris. I think you actually put us in a really good place to to sort of wind down here, which is that the great product-led companies are increasingly taking on the the behaviors of consumer and e-commerce companies and being data-driven. Really, really understanding the data of usage around their products, is, you know, and Dylan and, and Amanda have mentioned. We're going to talk about, I think, the data side of enterprise go-to-market in a future one. Um, you know, Figma has, has really sort of defined the model of how all this comes together. Really appreciate uh, Amanda and Dylan spending time with us. We know you're both uh, probably and well-deserved of some time off after Config, uh, and Anne and, and Boris and, and Stephen and Ben, thanks for joining us. Uh, we will have more of these. This is an, a topic that actually never ends when we talk about go-to-market, because as you figure out one piece of the lever to get right, there's just no, there's more slack somewhere else in the system that needs to be tightened up. And uh, so thanks for everyone who joined, and uh, thanks for the speakers. Super fun. Thank you so much for having us.
4: Thanks, David. Yes. Thank you. Thanks, thanks so much. Bye, all. Bye.